Hello, and welcome to Starting the States, Episode 5, Part 2 of Divide in New Jersey. Last time, we left off discussing how East and West Jersey were constantly in competition with one another. Their different populations, culture, and political factions were largely responsible for their continuing rivalry. A consequence of the two sides' disputes was that it made both weaker. In addition, the constant years of civil unrest and questions surrounding the proprietor's right to govern left a lasting wound that would not heal. You may recall how last time I briefly mentioned that the proprietors gave up their rights to govern in 1702 when New Jersey was officially absorbed by the English crown as a royal colony. The years of unrest and questions surrounding their legitimacy to govern took such a toll that they did not put up a fight when England came knocking. England began to formulate royal colonies in an effort to tighten control over their ever-growing empire. Seeing the borderline disorder and chaos taking place in New Jersey woke the crown up to the realization that they needed to regain control from the proprietors. It was time for the king to do what a king does best, rule. Even though governors were appointed by the crown, colonies were still able to maintain some autonomy, including an assembly elected by the people. However, not all assemblies lived up to this ideal. Many held a monopoly on power, similar to what we saw with the Quakers in Pennsylvania. The proprietors in New Jersey found their new colonial classification as a welcome change due mostly to the fact that they were able to keep legal titles for the future sale of all frontier lands. There are probably two substantial changes to come from New Jersey's reorganization as a royal colony worth mentioning. The first being the reunification of the East and West. The change in classification brought New Jersey together as one, but even though the territorial divide had been closed, the internal divisions remained a fact that would continue to hinder the development of the colony. The second is that the royal governor appointed to rule New Jersey was the same governor ruling New York. Last episode, I mentioned that New Jersey and New York had a history of, uh, how do I put this mildly, uh, deep hate towards each other. The appointment of New York's governor further intensified the unpleasantness felt between the two colonies, and New Jersey continuously complained that the governor favored New York over them. Ah yes, sibling rivalries are the worst. It is likely the governor did favor New York, but not without reason. Historian Maxine Lurie points out that the long history of unrest in the colony and constant arguments against the proprietor's right to rule had damaged the engine of commerce meant to grow the colony's cities and ports, meaning New Jersey was unable to compete economically with the well-established and successful cities in New York and Pennsylvania. So, it is probably true that the governor dedicated most of his time and energy to ensuring the success of New York cities instead of trying to build up the inferior ones in New Jersey. Historian Alan Taylor rightly points out that, quote, Relatively small and poor, New Jersey remained economically dominated and politically overshadowed by its wealthier, more numerous, and more powerful two neighbors. As one can imagine, New Jersey was none too happy with their situation. New York was responsible, at least in part, for why the proprietor's authority to govern was continuously questioned since the colony's founding. New York disputed New Jersey's land claims, resulting in New Jersey's two original proprietors being taken from their beds in the middle of the night on the orders of New York's governor. The final straw to break the camel's back was the favoritism given to New York over New Jersey after both were ruled jointly by one governor. The stage was set for a rivalry that has spanned generations 
and continues to play out to this day. Fed up with the unfair treatment by New York's governors, in 1738, New Jersey petitioned the Crown to have their own royal governor. The Crown agreed and appointed Lewis Morris, the Consolidated Colony's first governor. The appointment of Morris inspired the Jersey proprietors to fight back against New York and their land claims. Morris was one of the original East Jersey proprietors that had received land in the territory, making him well aware of the long history of disputes between New York and the settlers that wanted no part of New Jersey. Fed up with New York, he and the other proprietors went to work surveying the borders of the newly unified colony. The land survey revealed developments that led to further disputes with New York. In Mark Stein's book, How the States Got Their Shapes, he writes that the Duke of York defined the northern border of New Jersey as being the line between, quote, the northernmost branch of the said Bayer River of the Delaware, which is 41 degrees 40 latitude, end quote. The problem with this is that the most northern point of the Delaware River extends far into New York and well past 4140 degrees latitude. Knowing that claiming the northernmost point would infuriate New York, New Jersey settled for the 4140 latitude mark. But even this was a problem, because as Stein points out, it cut off a narrow strip of land along the Delaware River that New York wanted. Violence broke out as the two colonies once again came into a dispute about who had the rights to the land. The disagreement was not finally settled until after the American Revolution, when New Jersey conceded their claims to New York, creating the familiar northern border we see today. Not surprisingly, this was not the last or the longest border dispute the two colonies had. The argument over New Jersey's eastern border is somewhat of a historical oddity that had repercussions spanning all the way into the 20th century. The original grant defined the eastern border of New Jersey as, quote, bounded on the east part by the main sea and Hudson's River, end quote. Not very descriptive at all. It's like the Duke of York was trying to cause decades of confusion and conflict. One of the main problems with this less-than-stellar description is that it failed to define, well, really anything. After New Jersey waved goodbye to New York's governor in 1738, replacing him with their own, they were feeling pretty confident and argued that their border should be at the midpoint of the Hudson River. They also claimed that all land belonged to them west of that line, meaning that Staten Island would fall into their jurisdiction. Stein rightly points out, after all, that Staten Island is physically much closer to New Jersey. New York not being one to be pushed around was like, uh, I don't think so, and thus began another war of borders that raged until 1833. Why is this a historical oddity, you ask? Shh, I'm getting to that point right now. The 1833 agreement between the then two states was peculiar, to say the least. It created not one, but two boundary lines between the two bickering territories, one above water and one under it. The underwater boundary divided the Hudson River in half, all the way into the New York Bay, giving New Jersey jurisdiction over all underwater land from the middle of the river to its coast. I'm sure this is not exactly what they had in mind, seeing as land underwater might be a bit hard to market. The above-water boundary, on the other hand, largely favored New York, giving them authority over all land above the water, all the way to New Jersey's mainland, including Staten Island. But the deal was not all bad for New Jersey. Mark Stein points out an important caveat in the agreement. He writes that the above-water surfaces 
and anything attached to them that connected to New Jersey's mainland were exempted from New York's jurisdiction. This is important because it gave New Jersey the rights to build a harbor, vastly improving its economic worth. Oh wow, finally, New York and New Jersey came to an agreement on borders without violence and men being dragged from their beds in the middle of the night. Had the two sides finally reconciled their differences? Uh, well, not exactly. The hate between the two colonies ran deep, both literally and figuratively. Literally in the sense that the underwater boundary defined by the 1833 agreement rose to the surface in the 1990s. Uh, bad puns aside, at the center of the controversy was a seemingly innocuous island. In the late 1800s, New York City had begun to experience a never-ending flow of immigrants into the city. It made creating a large processing center for them essential. The site chosen for the new facility was a small rocky island in the New York Bay called Ellis Island. So just how did this relic of immigration become the newest flare-up in the New York-New Jersey rivalry? Well, after Ellis Island ceased to be an immigration hub, it became a popular tourist attraction. New York was raking in the profits of a booming tourism industry, while New Jersey just sat and watched on the sidelines. Not one to let New York take all the glory, they brought their 1833 border agreement out of storage. You see, by itself, the island sits above water in the bay. Falling into New York's jurisdiction, even though it is on the side of New Jersey's underwater boundary, and here lies the problem. When the buildings were being constructed, fill from the seafloor was used to add acreage to the relatively small island. New Jersey argued that since the fill came from underwater, it was part of their jurisdiction in accordance with the 1833 agreement. Those darn New Yorkers are always trying to steal right from under us. It took five years of arguing, but in 1998, the Supreme Court in a 6-3 decision ruled in favor of New Jersey. The court found that the parts of the island that were made from the fill belonged to New Jersey, adding up to about 90% of the entire island. New York's pride took a hit, while New Jersey just pointed and laughed. Today, Ellis Island falls under the jurisdiction of both states. The entire complex on the island is split up between them. If you search Ellis Island on Google Maps, you can see the wacky border for yourself. This was just the most recent clash of the never-ending rivalry and I have a feeling it won't be the last. I realize that I jumped way ahead in New Jersey's historical timeline, but I feel that the constant border disputes between New York and New Jersey is important for understanding the history of animosity between them, and how it has shaped the image of New Jersey today. Now, the moment you have all been waiting for, let's jump backwards in time to take a look at New Jersey during the American Revolution. Much like the history of other colonies, New Jersey suffered from the same political divides leading up to the Revolution. The colony had a large Loyalist population, including their royal governor at the time, William Franklin. Franklin was none other than the son of founding father Benjamin Franklin. But unlike his father, William decided to take a different path at the outbreak of the Revolution by staying loyal to Britain. Historian Catherine Fennelly believes that his reason for staying loyal came down to his belief that the British Empire must endure. Ironically, his father Benjamin likely was the first to give him this idea. I mentioned briefly in the Pennsylvania episode that Benjamin Franklin wanted nothing more than to keep the empire intact, but ultimately changed his mind after realizing that Britain did not want to absorb Americans as equal British citizens. 
William accompanied him on his trips to England, and was influenced by his father. He believed the colonists were wrong and the Crown and Parliament were right. William and Benjamin provide a good example of just how deep the divisions between Loyalists and Patriot ran in the colonies, even between father and son. New Jersey was the site of many military engagements during the war, including the battles of Trenton and Princeton. I had the pleasure of visiting the battle sites of Trenton and Princeton myself, and it is something I recommend for any amateur historian or otherwise. I remember staring across the field, trying to imagine the sights and sounds of war that men on both sides experienced. It is a very surreal and somber feeling standing on land where men fought and died. Doing so helped me understand the true feelings of patriotism that men of the Continental Army must have felt. The Battle of Trenton is remembered as one of George Washington's great victories. On Christmas Day, Washington led a small army in a surprise attack on a garrison of Hessians at Camden Trenton. In order to get there, he famously had his troops ferried across the Delaware River in the early morning. The site of the crossing is a National Historic Landmark, complete with a museum and historic village. The museum also features replicas of the Durham boats used by Washington and his troops to cross the river. I will upload a couple photos I took of these to Twitter so you can see for yourself. The attack took the Hessians completely by surprise. Realizing their dire situation, the Hessians quickly surrendered. The Battle of Princeton did not go as smoothly for Washington. After the surprise at Trenton, British General Charles Cornwallis sent reinforcements to support Princeton and attack Washington. Though he had numbers similar to the British, the men Washington had were militiamen and not the hard-trained soldiers of the British. Despite the odds, Washington and his officers boldly decided to attack Princeton. The battle took place on the farmland of William Clark. The British and Americans fought with great ferocity. The momentum shifted back and forth multiple times before the end. Eventually, the British line collapsed and they fell back in retreat. The victory boosted confidence among the colonies that their army and revolution could succeed. In the aftermath, the British lost most of their control on New Jersey until the end of the war. Well after the revolution, and on December 18, 1788, New Jersey ratified the Constitution, officially becoming a state in the United States of America. The history of New Jersey shows a state that was the victim of bad luck. Unlike other colonies, it was literally divided in half between East and West, creating the environment for societies with competing interests. The competition led to a colony that was running on two speeds, preventing the growth and prosperity that other colonies achieved. In addition, questions surrounding the legitimacy of the New Jersey proprietor's right to rule created unrest that undermined their authority and hindered the development of the colony even further. New Jersey was a pipsqueak colony, allowing the big boy colonies to take advantage of it. The biggest bully to terrorize New Jersey was New York. Not only did it lead campaigns against the proprietor's right to rule, including instigating mobs to arrest their governors, they also blocked New Jersey's growth at every spot they could. New York dominated New Jersey, economically as well as politically, and it continues to, to this day. In the introduction of last episode, I told the story of my friend, who said New Jersey is nothing more than a parking lot for New York. What I neglected to mention is that him and I are actually from New York. I know, I know, surprise twist. Given the history between New York and New Jersey, it should come as no surprise that New York continues to perpetuate this image of New Jersey. Is it really only good for being a parking lot? Of course not. 
but New York has worked hard to remain superior to New Jersey, so depicting the state in a negative way helps it maintain dominance. The smear campaign against New Jersey should not distract away from its place as a founding member of the United States. It was a location of pivotal moments during the American Revolution, and it has a history that is just as important as any other of the original 13 colonies. It is not a parking lot, far from it. Despite all odds working against it, New Jersey continues to stand as a testament to overcoming adversity. Next time, we head down south to the fourth state to ratify the Constitution, Georgia. If you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you download from. Your support is greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening to another episode of Starting the States. Follow me on Twitter at Start the States to stay up to date. Also, if you have any questions, concerns, comments, drop me an email at startingthestates at gmail.com. Thank you.